Hello, and welcome to As It Comes, live from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I'm wistfully looking back at the year of 2019 as I complete my tax return. Yay! It's always a worthy retrospective doing the tax return as we tally up our income and expenses over the financial year. Sometimes it's nice to look back on your diary and think about the memories of those gigs. The good, the bad, what we learnt from them, who we met on certain engagements, how we managed logistically to teach in the morning in one city and do a show on the other end of the country somehow that night. My guest for episode 31, Daniel Rainey, spoke about this. How, whenever he was feeling a bit uncertain for the future, he'd just look at past engagements and feel proud of himself for overcoming certain obstacles in the past and having faith that work would come in when he thought at the time it wouldn't. Go back and listen to that episode, by the way, number 31. Obviously, we're looking back at the 2019 to 2020 financial year through a completely different lens this year. Instead of giving us solace that things will come through, looking at the past is just a stark reminder of how things have changed working as a freelance musician. It's been kind of crazy looking at old receipts of how much I used to spend on travel, how many lunches and dinners out I purchased, namely how much I spent on veggie Percy pigs on the road. (laughs) For the uninitiated, Percy pigs are a sweet or a candy that you can buy here in the UK from Marks and Spencers. They got me through many a train ride and rehearsal, even some shows back in the day. (laughs) It's great when you have a dress that has pockets, just saying. And while I feel a bit sad looking back on the good old days, I do at least feel grateful that I got to do those professional engagements. I'm just going to claim as many expenses as I can. And on the plus side, if you can call it that, at least the tax return for 2020 to 21 is going to be relatively simple. My guest this episode is composer, arranger and orchestrator Peter Riley. Peter's very accomplished at what he does, having worked on orchestration and arrangements with Pete Tong, Jules Buckley and the Heritage Orchestra, Tom Jenkinson, aka Square Pusher, adding orchestral elements to electronic and dance music, as well as many other incredible jobs that he's done. We chatted about what keeps Peter busy now that he's got the time, reaching crazy deadlines, Keeping up to date with skills required for an ever-evolving job. The importance of feedback. To be honest, we talked about loads of things. Because we chatted in person. Which, as we all know, is more conducive to a flowing conversation than online. We met up in Beckenham Place Park in southeast London in early December, back in the heady days of Tier 2 or 3. So you'll hear some natural background noise occasionally some animals, but I think it adds to the ambience nicely. You can pretend you're on a walk with us. Here's my chat with Peter. Beckenham Place Park, and uh, that's the mansion up there. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's the first time I've ever been here. Really? Yeah. Well, this has been my kind of local park for, well, well, we have my whole life. It's been my sort of second nearest park. So it would be the place we kind of came after GCSEs and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Oh, and you mentioned before that you saw your first bit of live music this summer here, didn't you? 
Yes, it was actually, it was a really kind of important moment actually. Um, I had a group of friends that I, I normally uh, work with in Heritage Orchestra and they announced that they were playing a gig under a tree in my local park. Yeah. So these are guys that would normally be playing up at the West End and everything else. They were playing New Orleans jazz in my local park, basically Aww. for the people that turned up. And yeah, so the, the Alvar Tree Frogs, I'll shout out to them now. It was quite an emotional thing actually to, yeah. to see live music for the first time since whatever it was, February. Yeah, since March. Um, isn't it? Yeah. How do you feel when you see live music again? Because for me, I'm always like, I start welling up inside. It's, it's a strange, indescribable feeling for I, me. I think, I think it's always been a really important thing for me. Mm. But I think it's really kind of brought it home this year just how important it is. Yeah. Uh, it's that literal kind of connection with the people that are sat just metres from you. Yeah. And the instruments are there and it's all coming direct into your ears and not through... Some kind of, you know, Zoom interface yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or even your TV. Four by four, 16 squares, yeah. And it's the ability of, you know, the audience to react to the performers and the performers to give that back to the audience, mm. I think, which you lose. Yeah. Uh, it's feeding off that. I think it feels cold without that. Yeah, and I think, because you, you take it for granted, definitely when you're doing it all the time, I certainly feel that way, but the times that I have managed to make music this year, you realise how much you can communicate with your fellow music makers without actually saying anything because you're, you're communicating with your instrument with your voice or whatever and that's the feeling that I feel like I'd really missed this year yeah I think it's a connection that you you just can't get in any, any other way I think uh, and as yeah. you say non-verbal communication mm. especially as someone that kind of hides behind the dots often of the music <laughs> I find that music is a great way to communicate without having to use words and it's a uh, an incredible thing. Oh, we need more of it. But we're not going to get much of it over the next few weeks, are we? It's not great, I think, because I, I was hoping to have a little Christmas concert going on somewhere in Belgium, I think, which is now being another casualty yeah, and yeah. kind of things are all shutting down. Yeah. But it's really hard kind of thinking about the future and, and you want to be hopeful, but at the mm -hmm. same time you want to be realistic. Realistic, exactly. Which is tricky, but I take some kind of solace in knowing that there are countries like Taiwan and New Zealand that have in the past few months been putting on arena size shows with 8,000, 10,000 people, admittedly turning up with their face masks and having their temperature yeah. checks. But I hope that is us. Some point next summer, fingers you know, crossed. fingers crossed, yeah. that will be the best thing, will be, be having that experience again of being in a room absolutely kind of yeah. thronging with the energy of the audience. I just hope that this country can look at those other countries as role models, you know. I mean, it seems highly unlikely given who's... She says as a New Zealander. Well, given, given who's yeah. in power at the moment, yeah. and there's so much bravado and ego involved with all the decision-making processes, and I just wish that, like, you know, we could look at these other countries and be like, look what's going on there. Well, I think so, and because it's been a unique kind of thing for something to happen to to effectively the whole world at once, mm. to see how other countries have handled it, and admittedly at the start everyone was doing things slightly differently because they didn't really know what the effect would be. Yeah. But now we've seen that you know if you you know if you go hard on it, if you close your borders down, if you do these things, suddenly your your kind of cultural industries can return yeah. and your economy can start to get back to what it was yep. and. The well-being of your citizens increases. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a it seems like an obvious thing. Was it Stephen Fry said something when the problems were coming back this summer for, for their sort of limited mm -hmm. run, and he said something about music returning like the weeds coming up through the pavement. 
Right. Um, <laughs> which is a, it's a nice image. I'd like to point out we're not weeds. Yeah, uh, sure. But, yeah. but now we kind of we need watering. I think the pavement <laughs> needs breaking up a bit. Yeah, that's a good analogy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Because gardening is such a long-term thing, and gardening has been one of the things I've been doing this year during, ah, during yep. the pandemic because we've all got these new ventures that we're getting into. But it's because it's such a long lasting endeavour it needs cultivation and I think that's a partnership between it's, it's something you know we do as musicians but it's something that society needs to kind of be involved in and mm-hmm. and say is this something you want you know do you yeah. want this kind of rich kind of culture available to you and this entertainment industry you know it's not just mm-hmm. about the arts but it is about entertainment as well and it's how we invest in that mm-hmm. yeah it's a, such a long-term thing isn't it it's not just the end product like oh look a concert here's the thing but there's such a build-up towards that as well and there's there's other industries involved which i think sometimes mm-hmm. people don't realize the kind of the offshoots of you know you put on a concert but there are you know we've heard about more about this summer the, the people doing the kind of the rigging and the lighting the sound but then there's also the, the catering there's yeah. all the local businesses that sit around a, a concert venue or a music festival that mm. kind of really benefit so yeah. to me it seems like an obvious thing to really try and stimulate this yeah. next year but we'll see i think yeah keep the ecosystem going yeah Oh dear. Well, thanks for joining me today in the park. I do enjoy an alfresco podcast session. So I'll just introduce you to people who don't know you. So Peter, you're a composer, arranger and orchestrator. What are some of the things that you've been doing this year? I mentioned (laughs) gardening. What's one thing that you've been doing? So you're talking about the distractions. Uh, (laughs) Sure. Because I think they're always important in doing what I do because a lot of it is spent in front of a computer. So I think I'm good at distractions anyway. Oh, okay. But this year they've definitely taken on a, a new kind of higher importance. So I'd say one of those is definitely gardening, same as you. I've got a big thing for chilli peppers. You do, don't you? And you've had a lot of success with chilies, is that right? It's something, I don't know why. It's one of these things that you like pick up a packet of seeds when, when you're whatever, like 20 years old or something, and then you start every year, so it's growing different varieties, mm-hmm. and it's just a bit of fun, and it's, yeah. it's something that forces me outside of the house. Yes, away from your computer screen. Away from the computer screen. So it's yeah. literally just 20 minutes each day and whether you're going just to water them or pot them up or something or, or maybe you've grown them and you're making chilli sauces to give to your friends and oh, things nice. like that. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I should have bought some today, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. Um, so I think that's an important distraction. Another one has weirdly been crazy golf online. How do you play crazy golf online? How does that work? Uh, well, literally there's a, a, a game online called Golf With Your Friends. Which okay. I thought you were trying to get away from the computer screen. I though. know. Well, this is the thing, <laughs> but it's been, it's been the kind of the, the the social outlet when you've not been in a park or in the outdoors. So, a group of us started playing that. It must have been in March, mm. I guess. I don't even want to say how many hours we've spent playing crazy <laughs> golf, but it's more about the talking and being around other people. Yeah, it's the connection and the socialisation. I say that because I rarely win. Right. Uh, but but um, so that's been another major distraction. The final thing I'd say has been DIY. Oh, of course, because you bought a property, was it during the pandemic or shortly before? It was shortly before, but I only moved in in June, I think, because it was basically, it it all kind of was put on hold for quite a long while. Um, And yeah, doing up a house, I I can recommend as a great way to distract yourself from the rest of the world. And I guess also, you know, at least you have this time to do it rather than like in our old schedules when we were super busy. Yeah. How do you find the time? (laughs) It's it's very true. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know what would be going on. If I'd had a a normal busy year, actually, I'm Mm. not quite sure. Yeah. The wallpaper would probably, probably still be hanging off the walls. Yeah, well, it's nice to make it your haven. I remember talking to you about your property because I think you bought your place just as mine fell through. 
<laughs> yeah, because we kind of went on that journey together in a way. Because yeah. I think you you kind of were telling me about this probably this time last year. That's why I was very stressed. I remember, yeah. And I, I can definitely... Um, <laughs> I can sympathise with the stress, especially as a musician. You kind of have all these extra hoops that you yeah. feel you have to jump through. Exactly. And I mean, I've heard a few stories from people trying to buy houses now, self-employed musicians. And yeah. It's been really difficult, you know, to secure the mortgage. I feel like it was hard enough back in the day. Yes, yeah, which know. is only six months ago, or <laughs> you know, whatever it was, eight months ago. But now, you know, they want to see proof of your earnings, and I've heard stories of people being turned down for mortgages because they've been eligible for the self-employed income support scheme. Yeah. And you'd think, well, but that just shows that I earned, you know, in yeah, the previous income, three yeah. years. And then they retort and they say, but that shows that your income has been adversely affected by COVID. And it's like, who's hasn't, you know? <laughs> who's hasn't? And if you've got that kind of looking back at your last three years income and you hope that will in some way return. Yeah. yeah. But it's such a difficult thing and the rules just seem to be changing all the time. Because yeah. uh, I and I had a friend who started the process a little bit after after me and, and she thought she had a mortgage in place and then the same thing happened. They just changed the rules oh. one day. So I was very, very lucky to kind of creep through at the point I did. Yeah. But, um, good timing. Good timing. Very good yeah. timing. And that's the thing. It's it just kind of some. Oh, that's a really nice dog. So cute. That's sort of the thing that sums up house buying is that feeling of uncertainty and, and being out of control. Because even the, the what are you meant to offer price-wise yeah. and, and what's going on with all this and have they gone up and down and yeah no one prepares you for those sorts of things no it's one like prepares you. they just say make an offer and you're like uh of of what you know and then and then you just basically rely on all your friends and, and colleagues who've done it before to give yeah. you advice well, you, you very briefly become an expert in these things that's the weird <laughs> thing you do so much kind of internet yeah. research that you're like you could go to kind of any postcode within three miles and you could name the average property price yeah, briefly yeah, yeah, yeah. but then six months later that that kind of information's yeah. all useless anyway so yeah. it's, it's kind of a strange thing it's but, when uh, your your facebook sidebar ads start changing you start getting all these ads for like mortgage advisors and like moving house and uh moving vans and things like that yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the pandemic hits and you start getting ads for home base so it's really nice to hear about the things that you've been up to i have to say you sent me some chili seeds earlier on in the right year. But I had a 0% germination Oh, no. Rate. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what happened. i tell you what, next year, yeah. I'll give you seedlings. Oh. I'll get them going. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Because I had one chilli plant that was successful, but that was, yeah, a little seedling plug plant from yeah. <laughs> the aforementioned home base. <laughs> and that did very well, but I just couldn't set the seeds off on the right journey. Oh, well. No, yeah. next year. <laughs> <laughs> next time. And I'll get on to making some hot sauce as well. So... We met several years ago in 2013. Uh, we worked together in Southbank Sinfonia, working with Tom Jenkinson, a.k.a. Square Pusher. Yes, yeah. Fantastic electronic artist, and you did the orchestral arrangements yeah. for those and orchestrations. And we also have worked on lots of other projects as well, such as Heritage Orchestra, and we even did a remote recording a few weeks ago. I mean, no one can predict how one's musical journey is going to go in life, but tell me about... What set it all off for you? How did you germinate as a composer, <laughs> arranger and orchestrator? Oh, I mean, I think, put it this way, it was always obvious I was not going to be a performer because I was one of these people that I would start learning to play a tune mm. and within about 10 minutes I'd change the tune. <laughs> I, I was never going to be a performer yeah. in that sense. Um, but I didn't realise it was really a career option. I think even when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I didn't think of it as a career option. and I was kind of slightly aiming towards the kind of the film music composition type thing 
but I was doing a master's at Goldsmiths in creative practice and one of my tutors in uh, jazz arranging and orchestration and film music in Gardner said to me look I'm working on an opera for the BBC uh, with this composer Will Gregory who's uh, one half a gold frat oh yes and said I need help you know putting the, the, the dots together for this score for this opera yeah. do you fancy kind of coming on board and, and helping out with that so that was my kind of uh, trial by fire of orchestration <laughs> was being thrown into this big kind of two-hour opera commission and um dog 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 alert <laughs> <laughs> go on sorry. that's right uh, being thrown into this uh, two-hour opera co- commission but that was the start of it for me because I, I made some of my first kind of uh, links in the industry with will gregory adrian utley and, and charles hazelwood who then led on to the project with square pusher yeah. and it also it really taught me the basics of the practical side of orchestration i guess not what you what you kind of study when you're in college mm. but the actual kind of real life situation of being sent a piece of music at midnight that you have to orchestrate and turn around the scores to send to someone to print off at 7am for the rehearsal at 9am oh really have they really made you do something like that before that seems unethical uh, that's happened as recently as about a month ago okay. I, I wouldn't say it's it's that often but you certainly have to be willing to work quickly sometimes to, to work flexibly right, um, yeah. work at weird hours of the night much like performance back in the day I suppose yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's knowing how to work under pressure, being able to work kind of as efficiently as possible without cutting corners that would anyway hurt the performance or the recording. Yeah. But it's finding literally your kind of pathway through it that, that gets you to the end result. So I imagine you become quite a bit of a ninja in terms of technology, like with all the programs and stuff you have to use, right? I guess so. And I mean, if you, you sat me and three or four kind of orchestrator arrangers down in a room we'd start having a really boring conversation about uh, Sibelius and Dorico <laughs> and Logic and we'd go through our list of plugins that we like and that's a, a, a big thing actually mm-hmm. is, but, um, yeah, those conversations are really satisfying when you find the right people oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah there's literally there, there is a group of us that uh, you know we try and have a little Christmas dinner every year um, obviously we're doing it online this year Yeah. Uh, but it's literally a group of orchestrators arrangers copyists and we just kind of hang out and, and moan about you know things in software and and sometimes things in in the uh, kind of the professional world yeah set the world to rights yeah it's like oh man i can't wait until sibelius comes out with this new software edition and things like that yeah well i think <laughs> well the weird thing is because there's, there's this slow kind of I, I i don't want to call it a complete shift but dorico is this new kid on the block mm. kind of notation i think if i'm going to get this right the original sibelius development team were effectively fired by avid who are uh, who own Pro Tools and then Steinberg basically picked them up and said hey come make something from scratch for us yeah, um, okay. and so Dorico is this this whole new kind of program that builds things from the ground up and we're all kind of going through a sort of transition now at the moment where we're starting to get quite a number of professional jobs that are coming through right. uh, I worked on a film actually earlier this year only doing copying which is like the layout of the pages for the orchestra and I think it's one of the first kind of Hollywood films that's used Dorico for that so I was kind of there helping to lay out the pages and kind of find our pathway through using this new software for film music so it's kind of a new thing that you have to adapt not only to pressures of of deadlines and things like this with your job but also adapting to all the software as well and so Dorico this new thing is 
you know, you've kind of got to learn it, otherwise you'll be left behind, right? Yeah, totally. And I think, I want to say it's been out about three three or four years, something like that. And I, I've been sort of slowly learning over the three or four years, but obviously a lot of my professional work has still been coming in and on Sibelius. Mm. But you want to be in the best possible position for creating the best looking scores, but for also doing it as kind of again as efficiently as possible yeah. uh, so if there's kind of new workflows that have been set up that can make your job maybe easier or, or at least maybe using less kind of workarounds to get to the final result then you, you need to know those because if yeah. you don't someone else will know them yeah and yeah. Uh, I mean it's, it's interesting sometimes you you work with someone who, who work on a very old version of Sibelius which is absolutely fine but you'll find they've got a way of doing something that takes about eight hours and then when you tell them that there's actually now a way to do that same thing in 15 minutes wow. you know there's a penny drop moment when they go oh, oh okay yeah. maybe we'll look into the new one oh, but uh, yeah you've always got to keep learning keep, keep adapting, yeah don't you? I think yeah. yeah and I think that's the same for performers as well yeah. though, isn't it I, I think so like it's, it's kind of funny because obviously coming from a performer's point of view but the analogy that first came to my mind was actually my dad who's a GP yeah and just staying on top of all the medical literature that's coming out. Yeah. I mean, maybe that shows that I'm not always on top of uh, performance yeah. literature. <laughs> but, like, my dad, he's always reading stuff, like journals, like yeah. reading up about the new drug vaccines that are coming yeah, up yeah. and just staying up to date because you don't want to be that one person who doesn't know about something that is needing yeah. to be quite crucial. Do you find that you have a kind of a, a need to be comfortable in different repertoire like maybe there's a certain like yeah. everyone's starting to record this kind of thing you're mm. like okay I need to get my kind of chops around uh, a certain style or, or yeah can do I mean I would suppose that like most performers if you're if you're working freelancing in a big city yeah. such as London you've got so many different styles thrown at you yeah. all the time so you've just got to adapt yeah, basically yeah. and there are some people that are lucky enough to specialise in one particular performance practice, but then they would find their niche and perhaps they... It would be a struggle, wouldn't it, I think? It could be, unless they're really well ensconced yeah, yeah, yeah. in there. But, you know, depending on what you do, it, it's kind of in your best interest to be as broad as mm-hmm. possible with yeah, your yeah, yeah. playing style. That being said, though, I have to say, like you were saying before, having Christmas dinners with your orchestrated friends, talking yeah. about like Dorico and Sibelius, I do enjoy a really good geeky chat with cellists about strings <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> I can introduce you to some other cellists who've, who've literally started talking to me about oh I've got the new E string oh, I change it for this kind of an E string for a cello I That's don't impressive. know <laughs> um, yeah okay not an E string but uh yeah, five you get my drift. Guy. Yeah, yeah, no. Like, Actually, no. Yeah, it's a five string. Of course, it is. It's my friend Martin uh, oh, who plays. Cool. So he plays a, like an electric five string. So oh, that's pretty cool. That would make things a lot easier. <laughs> you could play like the Bach six suite and only go up to like fourth position. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all out there. So yeah, no. When people hear about like, oh, Larson have just introduced a new string. <laughs> It's got a synthetic core. Ooh, got to try that out. But it's so expensive as well, you know? You don't want to just buy a C-string and then realise, oh, this is crap. I, know, I, I was amazed at how expensive yeah. these things are. Cause I thought they were kind of like guitar strings, you know? You could buy a pack oh, for yeah. like, a, you know, 12 quid or yeah, something. Yeah. It's like, how much for one string? I know. Like a nice C-string will set you back almost £100. Yeah. Which is quite scary. So I'm getting a lot of mileage out of the set that I bought in 2019 because... To be honest, why am I going to change my strings this year? Yeah, no, yeah. no, no reason. Hopefully next year you'll need new strings. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully there will be an opportunity to do some more playing and things, things like that. I'm as, as we were talking about before. I'm trying to stay positive, yeah, but realistic. And finding other things to do as well. Like, distractions. Yeah, distractions. Growing chili plants from seedlings. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about one of your favourite projects that you've worked Ooh, on. Oh, I mean. 
it's a tricky one. Um, there's some very kind of honourable mentions, I think, because uh, I know you were involved with the, the Pete Tong project with Heritage, which is a, a real favourite. I liked your little sneaky things that you'd put in the string parts. Like, what? <laughs> like for example, there was one song, I can't remember, but the dynamic marking was quadruple F. Yes. And you'd written, like really f and loud or something <laughs> it was just yeah i think it was four f's in loud i think a lot of that kind of that attitude filters down from jules buckley who's obviously the conductor and the kind of the, the chief arranger and also chris wheeler as well mm. they've got this really kind of fun friendly attitude which yeah. literally it seeps into the music itself but you know what? I, I actually think it's important to communicate with the musicians kind of as warmly as you can mm. uh, even in the score i I know you could just stick to the, the, the kind of the Italian terms, but yeah. I think it can sometimes bring something to life when you <laughs> use something that's a little bit more casual, but uh, but yeah. the, the music go, ah, oh, I know what that means, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Or if, especially in that project, because you can be playing 50 repeats of a, a looped phrase. Yeah. And if the orchestrator's putting in there, look, you're nearly there, like, well done, <laughs> final stretch, you know, something like that. Yeah. It, it, it gives you something to lock into when you actually look at the sheet music, mm. but it also, yeah, hopefully yeah. It, it links you to us and to the music a little bit more. Yeah, I think you do a good job of doing that. It's a, it's a bit of moral support, isn't it? I mean, you've done it so far in advance, but then you get there. And as you say, sometimes you are playing these parts that have repeated ostinati over and over and over again. Yeah. And you just think, mm, what repeat are we on now? What line are we on? Because they all look the same. But if you just have something visually to lock onto. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one thing is um, it, it's not just being completely practical when you kind of produce this music it's, it's actually trying to imagine what it's like for the user for the the musician and yeah. to try and make it as user friendly as possible you're putting yourself in the performer's shoes um, i think so because i mean from a performer's perspective i've definitely seen scores that where whoever's been responsible for the parts hasn't done that yeah you know and you just think uh, why have you not put in bar numbers or something you know, well like that, that like. could be one of those 2am jobs where <laughs> uh, and they do happen more than you, you think but I think it's definitely something you, you slowly pick up because there's not many people really teach that Actually, it's, it's one thing where the kind of the feedback of the musician is really important so yeah. I've never been offended if a musician has come up to me and said look actually this page turn isn't quite as manageable as you think it is and I was like oh okay I'll keep that in mind for next time yeah. uh, you know I'd made some assumption about oh you know harpist not using a certain hand at a certain moments like, oh I can put in the cheeky turn there and like oh if you put it you know eight bars later it would work I'm like great that, yeah. that gives me a, a bit more knowledge for next time around exactly and then it's accumulative isn't it and you, you just accumulate this knowledge and then you, yeah. you have this database of <laughs> Knowledge of when to put in good page turns. When, but it's, it's not. It's not just the the kind of the layout. I think it's even what you actually write. I kind of have a tendency to take risks rather than be safe, especially if it's it's something that's being well rehearsed and not recorded mm -hmm. straight away. I'd rather take the risk and have a performer come back to me and go, "I can see what you're trying to achieve here. The way you've notated it, I'm not going to quite be able to do that, but." I've got a kind of a workaround for you mm. and this will work great. And yep. suddenly that's that's another bit of knowledge that I can take away with me for next time. Yeah. I say I wouldn't do that if it was going into a recording session at Abbey Road the next day for a film. I'd, yep. I'd stay safe. I'd stay to what I know. But if I know there's going to be a bit of rehearsal, then I think taking the risks is, is one way that you kind of really develop mm -hmm. um, and yeah. get away from the things you read in the textbooks. Exactly. And then that because things get revised all the time in rehearsal and going back to this gardening analogy, you know, it's better to start from a place where you can prune back yes you know rather than 
from I, I probably do that too much sometimes um, <laughs> rather I, than from a zero germination well, rate, okay, you know, <laughs> well I, I know you know sort of um, Jules Buckley likes having options as well so if I'm not sure I'll, I'll, I'll kind of send something to him and go look this is belt and braces this is you've got the options in there you take out what you don't want yeah. and uh, you know we'll, we'll kind of it would, it's better than not having it on the page yeah. um, again it, that depends on if you're going to have a rehearsal process mm. I think if you're going straight into recording then you have to know what you want and put it on the page yeah. but if you've got a bit of flexibility then I think giving some options there's actually uh, the Metropole Orchestra in the Netherlands yeah. they've got like a machete on the wall of their rehearsal studios which <laughs> supposedly was I think it was Vince Mendoza's kind of editing machete it was a, a bit of a joke that you know oh, right. he would be kind of cutting bits out of the score yeah. you know so I think that's part of the process yeah. is editing refining learning yeah. and, and coming back with a bit more knowledge for next time exactly um, Start from more and then pair back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can see why that would be an honourable mention, though. Cause oh, yeah, right. That was just, just an honourable mention. Yeah. Just thinking that that was a year ago, 18,000 people packed into the O2 and how that would just not be possible anymore. No, and <laughs> I mean, it's it's really sad because I, I saw one of these kind of Facebook timeline posts came up that, yeah. that it, it was like, oh, I had such an amazing night, you know, Maxi Jazz and Beverly Night and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's already booked in for next year and I don't know how we're going to top it. <laughs> I'm so Which, sorry. I don't mean to table. laugh, but but you know what? They're, they're actually they are doing it. Um, obviously, at the point this goes out, it'll be in the past. But yeah. uh, they they're, they're actually doing a live stream concert from the O2 Arena floor. Yeah, that's uh, right. This Saturday, I believe. Which I think is the first gig to be put on in the O2 since lockdown. Right, musical uh, gig. Yeah, the first musical yeah. gig. They did tennis there. Oh, did? Oh, yeah. Okay, the tennis. <laughs> All right, I, I don't follow sport. All right, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's the first first music gig to go on in the O2. So okay. they're they're yeah. finding ways to adapt. I think, like we all have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 put on something, but. I'm, I'm really hoping that next summer I get to go and see them. Uh, uh, I think they've sketched in for the Isle of Wight Festival and a few other things. Oh, nice. So I'm hoping I get to go along and just be part of that again. It was just the gig that just brought everyone together, wasn't it? It was. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I think, so and fun. I, I think sometimes we almost undervalue fun in music. You know, <laughs> it's there's something about a project that's just fun. It can bring a lot of people together. Yeah, I like so. having fun in music, but that's the thing. I think there's a slight mentality with maybe conservatoire or college you know you've got to be very serious about your craft artistic yes yes artist. and then you know you listen to certain um commentaries on classical music especially and it's very easy to come up with a idea of how that sounds yeah i mean <laughs> like i say i studied at goldsmith so the word kind of art was written in big letters i think uh kind of hanging over a lot of what you did especially in composition and I remember the one thing that really kind of opened my eyes was when I, I, I did a unit in ethnomusicology and kind of cultural music studies and they started defining music not by trying to work out whether it was art and what art meant and and all these other things and who was protecting the word art but actually by the way it functions you know mm-hmm. and, and it's uh, is it entertainment is it something that's a social activity that brings us together is it educational mm-hmm. is it a commentary on the world but there's there's all these other ways that music can function I think they're all important yeah exactly it's not just one yeah. function is it yeah, yeah no yeah I think I, I think especially this year it's taught us of the importance of all these things that music does for for our kind of society really yeah our society our well-being yeah just communication of ideas and 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 then also there's music that's art for art's sake yeah. as well which is so. which is all part of it I think it's all really yeah. important so uh, yeah. yeah so y- if that was an honourable oh, mention right. what's 
a project that's right up there at the top? Well, well we're circling all the way back now to the, the, the project uh, which I worked with you on in 2013, so the, the Square oh, Pusher project. That was a good project. It yeah. was Well, it, it was a really important project for me because it was the first time I kind of had the reins taken off me. I wasn't working with another orchestrator arranger kind of okay. overlooking what I was doing. I was essentially given almost a free reign on this score to come up with my kind of orchestral interpretation of uh, this album called You Fabulum by, by Tom. I still remember really well the phone call from Charles Hazelwood and he sort of said, look, I've got this idea for a project, you know, composer is Tom Jenkinson, album's called You Fabulum, look it up, you know, do you fancy doing it? And I, I didn't even listen to the album, I just said yes on the phone. And then I went home and listened to the album and I went, what have I let myself in for? <laughs> yeah, say yes first, work it out later. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, <laughs> But it's even the birds entertain by that. It's, it's an incredible kind of uh, sonic experience as an album. I mean, uh, at the heart of it, you've got these kind of drum and bass drums and quite this quite kind of trancey, melodic kind of chordal stuff. But some of the sounds going on around it are completely insane. Yeah. I mean, I know I think there was a moment where Tom had used in the original this gliding synthesizer, which generated all these crazy overtones. Mm. And I think I got, had you guys as cellos playing it. It kind of sounded like Formula One cars going around the track. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, there was that one track you got us as, as if we were changing gears. You know, yeah. it was like... Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, that was a... Synth- and it, it, was, it was great, actually, to be freed from thinking of the orchestra in terms of its historical past in terms of the roles of the instruments and and, what it's doing. and think of it more as if it is a synthesizer itself so trying yeah. to go what sound can i get from different parts so with a synthesizer you might have like a, a three-layered sound and each sound will have its own envelope of its attack its sustain its you know decay you know release and i was finding myself doing that between the strings and the woodwind so mm. rather than having maybe a uniform kind of swell in strings and woodwinds now you might have the strings swell in drop out but the the woodwind take over the kind of the release trail because yeah, they yeah. were kind of representing that layer of sound in tom's work yeah yeah so it's using the orchestra as a whole like instrument. yeah yeah and it I, and there was also a lot of fun for me just going on youtube finding extended techniques that you know in studying kind of berio and whoever else you know when you're at college there's still a whole wealth of these extended techniques that people have come up with kind of in their own homes that aren't mm-hmm. documented very well. I mean, there's a great one of this guy playing French horn and uh, our friend Letty, bless her, mm-hmm. kind of obliged to trying out a lot of these kind of random techniques. I think there was one which we couldn't really do now because it was using a McDonald's, plastic McDonald's straw. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah I mean, very 2013. You couldn't yeah, do that now. Uh, Product which, of its time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, cut into the shape of a reed, which then kind of vibrated. So you had more like an oboe, tone quite gravelly going into the French horn and all these fun things I wouldn't get to do and I think the best gift was the day with you guys in In St John's in St John's Waterloo getting to try all this stuff out yeah I remember that day we were just like making funny sounds and (laughs) which which you never get to do I mean it's like getting given a Ferrari to to kind of take around a track with you know and it's like here's an orchestra do you want to try out some stuff for this project Uh, I think I had to orchestrate one track that we actually kind of rehearsed in full. And then other than that, it was a load of kind of random exercises Mm. just to see what what we could get out with. But it's good for us as well because, as the name Extended Techniques does suggest, it extends us as well. Yeah. You know, we become more flexible with the different types of sounds that we can make in our instruments. You mentioned before about being adaptable in performance. Yeah. You know, there's never going to be one set of playing that is thrown to you 
in performance. Yeah. You know, one day you might be playing quartet gig in a wedding, and then the next day is something like this workshop we were talking about. Yeah. Well, again, for me, it was it was great kind of to be there with Tom as well, mm. because I think it's it's important to state that he's a massive part of that process. And I think he had worked with an orchestra before, but not on, on maybe on that kind of material. But to be sat there and kind of had that feedback between the orchestra the conductor Tom and myself it's yeah. such a valuable thing he was really on it I remember he was like mm, someone in the viola section played an F sharp who was it who was it <laughs> like he could spot everything that was going his, on his <laughs> ears are incredibly keen and his writing is really interesting because if you take away a lot of the, the, the kind of the drums and the, the things that make it sound like it's on that kind of dance music electronica side of things it's actually just really solid kind of contemporary classical writing yeah yeah um, and i've heard him do projects since with like the london symphonietta and people like that and you wouldn't know it was the same person but he could yeah. take the very same notes and play them through a synthesizer and add a drum track to it yeah i was speaking to him recently and he was kind of saying well, well yeah that's his kind of trojan horse is he can open his music up to different audiences yeah. in the way he presents it it sounds like he's just got really good foundations yeah it? yeah oh and one of the the greatest kind of musical minds i know i think in yeah. terms of his approach to harmony and melody and and just yeah. the sonic world and that way it's not like oh i do this particular genre it's like i'm a musician he's a composer yeah and yeah. I, I think labels are useful but at the same time i think yeah he's one of those musicians that definitely you'd need to use a lot of labels to try to describe him <laughs> yeah which i think is a great compliment to say yeah. you, you can't pin him down yeah it's a huge compliment isn't it because it just brings out his uniqueness yes yeah totally yeah that's a good answer well it was the thing for me that set me off i think everything yeah. that followed kind of stemmed from that yeah so, um, pivotal moment absolutely i felt like that with well, because that was my Southbank Symphonia, yeah, and anything that followed that in the years after Southbank Symphonia, I could pinpoint its origin to that year. It's funny, isn't it? We've all kind of got, like, social media and websites and everything else, but a lot of it is uh, you do a project and you meet people and people realise you're a safe bet, you're a safe pair of hands or, you know, or you're amazing or whatever, but you, you find people that you like working with and who like working with you, yeah. and that leads to more work. And I think, Absolutely. actually, that is the way the music industry... For better or... No, I'd say for better. It's the way it works. Yeah, I think that's quite a nice way that the music industry works because it gets to a point where everyone can play well. Yes. But what's going to set you apart? <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you are booking or fixing certain players, you're going to book people that are nice to work with and exactly. flexible and adaptable and all these good traits that we've been talking about. You know, you could have the world's most incredible player if they're a bit of a dick <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's not many of those are there <laughs> oh they're around, oh, they're yeah, around. No, no. but I, I think just <laughs> by I don't know natural selection in the way that this industry works they kind of get weeded out to use that analogy again but they kind yeah. of get weeded out I think so yeah you may or may not know I have a segment in my podcast called the wild card question round yeah I'm vaguely prepared for this. <laughs> it's okay, it's harmless. So this is where you have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three choices that I give All right. you. All oh. right. So your choices are yep. cooking, unexpected talents, and oh, I kind of talked about this before, memorable gigs. Oh, I'm both intrigued and like, what the hell is it? unexpected talents? <laughs> so go on then. All right. What's something that you're very good at that I might not know about? Oh, this is a tough one. This isn't really, I wouldn't say 
is it something I'm very good at, but it's a, another kind of random hobby distraction type thing that I really enjoy. Yeah. Kite flying. What? Really? Okay, I would not have expected that. Yeah, so I don't know if you've seen these kind of massive kites that can kind of lift, well, they can lift you off the ground. Like stunt kites. Or no, not even stunt kites. They look more like parachutes. So they're, they're like yeah. six, eight feet yep, okay. wide. And yeah, they're a lot of fun. Uh-huh. And that's something I quite enjoyed. Like, uh, it's something I'll sometimes just kind of have in my bag with me. And if there's like a, a park nearby, I'll be like, let's go fire. Oh, we should have done that today because it was really windy before, wasn't it? It was really windy. It's also very muddy. So I might have <laughs> let you have a go. And uh, <laughs> No, I'm wearing my white shoes waved. today. That, that would have been a really, really bad move. <laughs> Is this just something that you've always done since you were a kid? I think it's always something I've done in one way or another but it was uh, yeah it was pro- probably only 10 years ago or so I picked up a little a little power kite oh. and started mucking around with that and it's again it's another outdoor distraction so yeah. I like my outdoor distractions well it sounds like you know you need them if, if you are primarily sat in front of a computer all day long or if you're doing orchestrations in the dead of the night preparing for that 7am deadline you need that outdoor space absolutely and because uh, that's the thing that's been really tough this year for me I can I can happily spend 28 days of the month in front of the computer screen working away on a project if I get the two or three days at the end of it where I'm in a rehearsal room or a recording studio with an orchestra mm-hmm. to me that's like the payoff right so I think that's the thing that's been really hard this year is even you know where there have been the, those kind of small winds of, of little projects here and there kind of out arts council things and bits and pieces it's been not then having that day. I mean, I actually, saying that, I, I kind of got close to it. I worked on a project about a month ago with the BBC Concert Orchestra and the cellist Abel Salauce. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me and another orchestrator, again, in Gardner, produced some arrangements for that. And because they were new arrangements, we were allowed to go to the rehearsal and kind of be there to answer questions. We didn't need to because actually the the conductor had it all sorted. But we were there just in case things had to be adapted. And it was so nice to be in, uh, we were in the the Royal Festival Hall on the Mm. South Bank. Obviously no audience, uh, although this was a rehearsal in a way. One-way systems in the corridors, which in that place is is really confusing. I think it took me about 10 minutes to find the toilet at one point. Uh, And everyone wearing masks the whole time. So it was slightly muted, but it was still lovely to be in a room with, uh, you know, sort of 50-plus musicians. It's like what we were talking about before, sort of coming full circle. It's just those feelings that well up inside you. When you get the opportunity to be in the same room as live music making. (sighs) It's something I can't describe, and I think even... If, you know, you've been to plenty of kind of orchestral gigs and concerts, there's something about my job when I get to literally sit next to the conductor, which I sometimes do during a rehearsal, and the power <laughs> of that sound, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It really is incredible. And it, it can be, you know, 50, 60, 80 musicians all coming together on this, this, mm. this one piece of music. And it's, yeah, it's, it's moving. A, it's a force, isn't it? It's a force. Yeah. And it, I, it's something I'm really looking forward to getting back to yeah oh well fingers crossed for 2021 I, I feel like there are these little slivers of hope that we have yes you know in august september things were starting to open up again and then we kind of went into tier two and then lockdown in october november and now we're in whatever the hell this is in december but you know i'm just hoping more slivers of hope really taking those moments when we can get them absolutely yeah and then Fingers crossed we get a vaccine soon so we can go back to normal. <laughs> we will get there. I'm, yeah. I'm convinced we'll get there. Yeah. It's just, you know, we've got to cling on. and <laughs> Cling on and keep pursuing... Um, keep growing chilies and yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> These distractions. Uh, whatever else, playing crazy golf and, and anything <laughs> possible. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining oh, it's me. It's been a joy. Outdoors, al fresco. I mean, we've talked so much about the importance of outdoor space today, so it seems quite fitting that we brought it outside for this episode. 
So where can people find out more about you and your work? Generally, if you if you Google Peter Riley Music, got a website which I've, I, <laughs> which I was in the process of uh, doing up. Yeah. I think when the first lockdown hit, so it's still in the kind of state of. <laughs> so hopefully by the time that this this has gone out, I'll have actually finished it. So oh that's no. a really good thing to make me finish the website. Yeah, you you still haven't got like a, a section that says highlights for 2020 or anything. Oh no no no! <laughs> Looking forward to 2020. No, um, uh, no, that's gone. So yeah, there's the website, and then I'm kind of on all, all the the normal kind of social media channels. So look for either Peter Riley Music or Music Pete is the, the kind of the the, the Instagram friendly uh, Twitter oh, kind yeah. of tag. Thanks so much. So we'll is, put those details in the show notes and thanks once again for joining me cheers hope you enjoyed my in-person conversation with peter riley check out the show notes for more information on peter as well as a link to the album euphabulum by square pusher that peter mentioned in our chat This might be a bit different from what you're used to listening to if you listen to a lot of classical music, but give it a go. It'll take you to another sonic world. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Park-sized thanks and gratitude to Peter Riley for being my guest in this episode. It was so great to chat in person for once. And as always, thank you for listening. This is new. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can now donate and buy me a coffee on my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash as it comes pod. Get in touch at as it comes podcast at gmail.com or on the website as it comes.com, where you'll also find all previous episodes and transcripts of the podcast. You can also get in touch with me via Instagram and Facebook, where I highly recommend you give me a follow and a like at as it comes pod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to those who've already done so. And thanks for continuing to spread the word. Chat to you soon and take good care. Bye. (laughs) 